Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Today's Kinney interview is with Professor Rob Vertesi. Rob has tremendous experience in leadership roles and in influencing policy throughout Australia in the water sector as well as now internationally. In this interview, we are going to discuss his perspective on leadership and the importance of leadership, also the importance of leadership not just from a personal level, but from an institutional level in terms of affecting change and implementing global policy. Uh, we talk about Rob's past uh, and how he has had the opportunity to work in so many different roles, leading to CEO of the Bureau of Meteorology, which um, this, was, this institution was established in order to coordinate all of the water data that was being collected throughout Australia. In particular, he also speaks about how the model that Australia has experienced can possibly be transferred to other countries. Most recently, Rob has been working with the Australian Water Partnership in India to understand how to support data initiatives in India. He's been also working with a high-level panel on water to support their international data initiatives, and we've spoken in previous interviews with Tony Slatcher. And so Rob is very open to share his ideas and also really looking at the role of the young water professional and what the future holds and how young water professionals can really engage in, in their profession to make some real change. With that, I'm Karen Delfo, and I invite you to enjoy this interview with Rob Vertesi. Rob Vertesi, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and to share your insights and experience in water management. Thanks for the I'm hoping we can just start with basic introductions, if you wouldn't mind to share a bit about your background and um, and the work that you've done over the past numerous years leading up to um, what you're doing today. Okay, great. Well, um, my uh, training is as a geomorphologist. Uh, I did my undergraduate at Monash University and a PhD up here at ANU in Canberra. Um, my PhD was all about um, large tidal river systems in northern Australia, understanding how they function, uh, how they change uh, over time, how they transport sediment and the like. There was a huge knowledge gap about how those northern rivers functioned. So it was an exciting uh, experience, very intensive field work for uh, quite a few years. In some uh, spectacular places, I bet. Yeah, spectacular and dangerous. So uh, after that, I uh, took up a research career in CSIRO, the National Science Organisation, and uh, I spent 20 years in CSIRO, uh, chiefly as a uh, research hydrologist. And uh, my thing was water balances. So I was a bit of a specialist in uh, forest hydrology, but I worked across different types of systems. And um, I really focused on uh, experimentation in catchments, making water balance measurements, and then modelling how those catchments were, were functioning. Um, about halfway through my 20-year career there at CSIRO, I started getting into leadership uh, positions, ultimately executive leadership. I became a director of a cooperative research centre. That's the Centre for Catchment Hydrology. 
um, and uh, later became the chief of CSIRO Land and Water Division. And um, so the second half of that period is really much about executive uh, leadership. Um, around the 20-year mark, um, we were going through a major drought here in Australia, and there was a great sense of panic um, uh, around the country about how we were going to get through this, this severe millennium drought. And uh, I had the opportunity to contribute to the development of some national water reform policies um, by way of a secondment to the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Um, so I spent four months over there working on the National Plan for Water Security. And specific part of that that I had carriage of was to do with reforms around water information. And uh, this resulted ultimately in a new function for the Bureau of Meteorology to undertake a National Water Information Service. So once that policy was enacted, I actually went to the Bureau uh, to implement it. And uh, I did that happily for the first five of a 10-year implementation program. Um, and at that point, I had the opportunity to become the CEO of the Bureau. And um, so I did that for the next almost five years um, prior to retirement, or semi-retirement. And, uh, and nowadays, I've, I really do two things. I've got a, um, a research professorship at the University of Melbourne, um, and that's a part-time thing. I spend a little bit of time doing that, doing research on water security and climate change. And the uh, rest of my time, I do kind of consulting work, and most of that's actually been framed around AWP activity abroad. So I'm really enjoying that, that, that part of my, uh, my career at the moment. And I can also really see how your involvement with n not just you know catchment hydrology from a fundamental perspective, but also the development of the regulations, the implementation of uh, a system for water data, how that could all kind of come together nicely and be just a set of tools that you're making available for maybe other countries who are interested in undertaking that kind of process or, yes, or going yes. through that. It's been nice. In a way, it's enabled me to come full circle because through much of my research career, I was utterly frustrated by the lack of good, reliable data on, on our water situation yes. in Australia. So if you're a modeler and you're trying to model water balances, you know, you're constantly chasing down different shreds of data that are held by different agencies. All different agencies and all different yeah, interests. Well, in Australia, it's literally yeah. uh, over 100, probably closer to 170, in fact. It, it's infuriating. Yes. And often they wouldn't give you the information, too, which was a problem. And yes. this is, we see this playing out in many parts of the world, in fact. So water reforms, um, you know, uh, around water information, you know, I had this kind of burning passion from inside as a scientist, but of course it's got a utility value which is far, far greater than, than what researchers are looking for, but uh, it was very satisfying, I suppose, to kind of, at least in Australia, cure a problem which had been driving researchers nuts. Bring it all together, make it accessible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a, a tremendous success, this program. And, and more than just getting the data and working with it, it's how do you communicate that and how do you develop tools so that it can be accessed and used. And I also think the Bureau of Meteorology has done phenomenal work in terms of progressing that way of thinking. You touch on something very important there, uh, and that's the 
you know, why should we bother point, you know, what's the what's the point of pulling this data together? So, you know, sounds sensible prima facie to do that, but it makes a world of a difference if you can actually utilise the information, repurpose it, as it were, into services that people use to make decisions. And we spent a lot of time in the Bureau thinking through how to do that because we understood that that was the way to garner support from the end-user community, and if you've got the end-user community support, then you, by definition, have got the government support uh, for for that as well. So, um, And surprisingly, a lot of countries that are thinking about getting their data in order aren't actually thinking about that end-use enough. A lot of them are thinking about the technical issues of, you know, where's the data, how do we get it, what kind of technology do we use to pull it all together? Yes. But not enough attention is being given to, okay, well, how are we going to actually utilise it to, yeah. to make a difference? In terms of tackling such a huge challenge, do you think that having that uh, legislative reform, the regulatory frameworks that have been put into place in Australia was one of the fundamental first steps in terms of enabling, I guess, the, uh, the next steps to really come up with the systems that you're speaking about, is, is that really like one of the fundamental and foundational first steps? It was vital. Yeah. Um, in fact, there had been many kind of collaborative, you know, negotiating type of approaches that had been taken in the years prior to these reforms to try and get the states pulling in the same direction. But there was never a to, to the owners of the data who are really only interested yeah. in the information for their discrete business interests, there's very little interest in them for the kind of national good. Uh, you know, you find a few enlightened souls, of course, that, that get that and can aspire to it, but most of them were kind of reluctant to participate in anything which added to their burden of their day jobs. Um, and in fact, there were some jurisdictions and some organisations that just did not want to play ball at all, wanted to hold on to the data, didn't want it revealed for various reasons. Yeah. You know, maybe they were embarrassed about the quality of it. There could be all kinds of reasons. A radical breakthrough was needed, and that's why you yeah. know, at the time I proposed, well, look, we need firm legislation for this. It couldn't be just a stick, though. No. You know, we couldn't just come in with a heavy-handed approach with an act. We needed that. That had to be balanced with a carrot, and, yeah. and the carrot were, was a major uh, funding program which the bureau administered on behalf of the government. It was yes. eighty million dollars. In fact, it was a lot of money, and that was passed out to all of the data owners to help them do their jobs better. Yes, to make better primary measurements, but also to help them um, build technologies to send the data to the bureau in a way that was not burdensome for them. So to automate the process, in effect. And that was incredibly successful, you know, carrot and stick. And stick, yeah. Yeah. And, and my, one of the realisations I had from all of this is that when you actually get down to it, the chief concern that virtually everyone has got is their resource capability to actually help. You know, most of these organisations are skinny resource-wise. Yes. You know, their funding has been reduced over the years, the number of staff has been reducing. They find it difficult to to kind of keep adding new tasks and responsibilities upon their day jobs. and So finding a way to actually help them do their jobs better and more efficiently once 
you know, once we seized on an idea there, that that actually freed people up to to want to help. Yeah, and I think that also maybe speaks to your leadership success to be able to understand the complexities both from the inside of an organization that might have some challenges, um, but to see how you can provide that support from your leadership role. Um, I'm wondering, just kind of in interest is, do you also provide support, uh, not just from the technical side, but also from the leadership side to, yeah, I can... Yeah, I do actually, yeah. In fact, I'm I'm working on something at the moment, a side project that I have is to work on a um, kind of a a bit of a training workshop on leadership in science agencies. Uh, Science agencies have got uh, some interesting characteristics. Um, I mean, they have mainly a lot in common with any other domain, but but one particular characteristic of science agencies is they're full of very bright, critical people. <laughs> and so you've got, to, you've got to find ways in which to engage with those people intellectually and win their, win their hearts and their minds. Yes. And that, that, that can be very challenging. So, uh, you know, a doctrinaire, top-down kind of um, approach just simply does not work in, no. in those agencies. You can't get those people to really ignite and flourish. You know, you've got to find ways to engage with them on an authentic um, kind of level. So I've learned a lot through my career in working out how to do that and I'm you know, thinking through at the moment how to run a the kind of executive leadership course on, on that topic and, and, and the many That's other great. attributes that you need to succeed in in, in the public sector. Many of us are conditioned to believe that what motivates people in the workplace are so-called extrinsic motivators, things like pay conditions. Mm. These are things that are certainly important, no question yes. about it, but it's the intrinsic motivators that keep people, what it, what it means to you know, people's kind of heart and soul, really. So, And scientists in particular actually sacrifice a lot of potential material benefits that they could get in, in different roles to actually come into science agencies to do research because of the intellectual stimulation that they get out of it. And they derive a great sense of satisfaction uh, out of that process. And that's why they stay. Mm. Um, and and so I'm, that's, it's necessary to actually understand that as a, as a foundation principle and work with that uh, in a science agency. Yes, we are driven to get results and outcomes and but the job of a leader, I think, is to kind of reconcile these these two things. How do you steer these people gently into producing the things that our investors um, mm-hmm. acquire back from us? Maybe this is a good time to kind of segue into um, the international work that you've been doing. I'm wondering if it would be possible to just kind of start to explore the work that you've been doing internationally, um, in particular the work with the Australian Water Partnership, but, um, but okay. more broadly. Yeah, good, good. Well, um as I said earlier, it's something I've really enjoyed this year, the opportunity to work with AWP, and I've had five missions abroad this year. Um, I've been to uh, Iran and to Jordan and to India, Pakistan, and uh, most recently Laos. Um, and so they're all, you know, they all, of course, have their, their different uh, aspects uh, to them and different challenges. Um, I have gone over to them generally to talk about my speciality area, which is um, how water information can be used by governments to help them navigate what are often diabolical imbalances between water supply and water demand. Um, 
So most of these countries, um, certainly the first four, Laos, a bit of a different kettle of fish, but um, these are countries that are undergoing acute water scarcity at the moment, and uh, partly because they're in you know, difficult hydroclimates, mm. but also partly because they don't have the appropriate um, policy and governance structures to, to limit water extractions. Um, and so water information turns out to be actually an absolute fundamental requirement. If you're going to balance your water supplies and demand, you need good optics on, you know, where's the water coming from, where is it, what's its supply trajectory in the future going to look like, where are the demands, how is it being utilised and so on. And, you know, these are fundamental requirements. And yet most of these countries that have these problems actually have rather poor water information arrangements. So I've been trying As to was the case in Australia not so long as ago. As was the case so. in Australia, I, I, I might say that we were probably never quite as bad right. as many of these countries. Um, some of them are, you know, lack even fundamental mm. monitoring networks, which is you know, really problematic. Um, but, um, yeah, we've got quite a few lessons here from our country. You know, we're still not doing everything right. We're still making lots of mistakes here in Australia. Um, but, um, you know, we've got some wisdom that we can share, and um, I'm finding that there's actually a great appetite for it uh, abroad in the countries I've visited. The people are really motivated to, to improve mm. their arrangements, and, yeah, I'm finding it fascinating to actually work through the different boundary conditions in these countries to uh, work out how progress can be made because you can't just transport the Australian model you know we've got completely different boundary conditions yeah. um, so understanding those boundary conditions in country and working with them and their particular uh, constraints is is yeah that, that's the really interesting bit for me so how does that process work is it possible you could share a story from one or two of those countries that illustrates just this how do you actually get started in this process? Yeah, okay. Well, um, well, each country it's different. Um, each country will have a particular type of peccadillo uh, that, it, that, it, that it has to deal with. Uh, a classic one in India, uh, let's start with India for a moment, is a reluctance to share information between states and between the state and the federal government, for instance. There's a lot of built-in resistance to that. So that's actually an important cultural mm. problem that needs to be surmounted. That's actually not so much a technical problem. And yet many people that are trying to address water information problems there are thinking about it as a, well, all we need is the right kind of information system. The right system. tool. Yeah, yeah, the right, right system. Tool. Yeah. And so that, that's really problematic. So to, you know, you need, need to get to the heart of the matter, I believe, to make substantial long-term progress. And I think, I think ultimately the only way to make real inroads there is to prove the value proposition of, you know, how everyone's lives can be enriched by better water information and sharing what is available. Mm -hmm. um, we've certainly proven that here in Australia. Um, you know, we've been able to create services which create real economic value. In yeah. fact, already, although the program's only just, you know, finished the implementation phase of 10 years, it's already returning a cost benefit of, you know, somewhere between three and eight at the moment already, even at this relatively immature state. And that, that return on investment is only going to be improving. 
in the future. So I think, you know, in a country like India, it's very important to go really back to basics, to, to talk about the inherent value proposition, to conceive of services which will have real appeal to the stakeholders, the owners of the information, to incentivise them to participate, to think through policy instruments that, that kind of help. Now, they might be partly regulatory. Yes. Uh, they might be partly financial. Uh, again, you know, tapping into the you know the inherent frustration that many agencies have that are resource limited. You know, to to incentivise them to, to cooperate. Mm. Uh, it may sometimes just take money, uh, yep. for instance. So working through those kinds of incentives, I think, is the real key. Um, and um, yeah, holding back a little bit on the kind of technical design stuff because I think that you know. Where India's at at the moment, I think it's, it's critical that they, they, they kind of pause on the technology and think more deeply about that other stuff. Having some sort of a, I don't know, facilitated other organisation or yeah. other approach, maybe would that be a, a good way to start? Have you seen that happening? Or Absolutely. I, I think strong institutions are the absolute key to this, particularly where there are complex inter-jurisdictional, inter-agency arrangements. Mm. It's absolutely essential that someone stands up and takes leadership and is properly resourced to do so, can manage the conversations um, and can devote itself to kind of creating the, the X factor out of, you know, you know the current assets, uh, basically. That was the magic of the Australian formula, and I think it's a generic thing that's going to apply wherever you go. Why should a particular single agency with a very discrete um, set of business objectives and mandates bother itself about other people's concerns? Right. That's the essential yes. problem, in a way. So it's essential, I believe, to create an institution with a mandate and a rationale to address the broader, uh, broader good. Yes. Of the country, of the sector, of the region, whatever function you, you, you're talking about. Um, and um, I've actually you know, made quite a point of that recently in some guidelines that I've written on this for the high-level panel on water. Excellent. Um, which those guidelines are about to, to be released in the coming month or two. Um, and there's a chapter in that actually on institutions and how you go about thinking through what their mandates are and uh, how you come about presenting propositions to government, for instance, to actually consider creating new institutions to serve these purposes. Now, we pretty much went the full distance here in Australia with the approach that we took. It was a you know big big money and, and big reach for the, for the Bureau. That might not work. But Australia has also countries. a really unique uh, approach, which I don't find in any other country, where it'll set up an institution, the institution will achieve its mission, and then it will dissolve that institution. Um, and I, you don't see that happening really anywhere else. I mean, organizations, institutions don't want to put themselves out of business. So how, how would you do it intelligently? I guess what, what you've said is make sure that that person has the resources, the authority, uh, the ability to be able to actually convene and create that shared vision around that, that value proposition yeah, um, yeah. and without the right person or the right yeah. set of people in place who can really expand those boundaries and be effective in that yeah, space. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing about Australia, remember, is we did not create a new institution. We gave the function to a pre-existing institution, Bureau of Meteorology. Often a good approach is actually to consider the National Weather Service. Um, 
In fact, when you when you look at all of the national weather services around the world, in many countries, far from all, but in many countries, in fact, they do have some hydrologic function already. Um, many many national weather services are also responsible for flood forecasting, yes. for instance. Um, not many are responsible for water resource type stuff, but in fact, my argument is that they're they're fit for purpose. For that task. Mm. I mean, we had to induct a whole lot, whole new cadre of water resource specialists into the Bureau to do this job properly. But the weather services have got many characteristics which I think are really beneficial for this type of thing. First of all, they're, they're very independent. They're, they're, not, um, they're not strong policy shops, for instance. They tend not, yeah. tend not to be driving a particular policy agenda, for instance. They're also generally respected for their um, technical prowess. Um, they have a lot of common infrastructure, um, you know, high-performance computers, databases, communication systems. Yes. They have um, serious bona fides in measuring stuff. Yes. You know, they're running you know, weather networks, weather station networks and, mm-hmm. and the like. So you find, in fact, that weather services have got many of the characteristics that you need to do this stuff well. And that's why, you know, the government chose in Australia to just assign it as an adjunct function to, to the Bureau. It's now been made a, a permanent function, which is fabulous. Um, and in several other countries I've visited, I've actually seen um, similar opportunities present themselves with, with the weather services as well. So I would exhort most people to start there. And they are stable organisations too, weather services, because the information they provide is so critical and they have a, you know, a sovereign, yeah, there's a sovereign requirement for countries to actually have that, that information at hand. They're by definition stable organisations mm. as well, which is what you want for long-term environmental monitoring of any kind. Mm. You know, I believe that, um, you know, weather services can do so much more for most countries than, than they are doing. And he, certainly here in Australia, one of the things I was doing when I was the CEO was, you know, trying to reshape or reinvent reimagine the organisation as a, a broad-based environmental intelligence agency rather than just a kind of a weather uh, a weather service. You know, our Bureau here in Australia does all kinds of stuff. It does oceans monitoring, it does space uh, weather uh, monitoring, um, it does the water piece, of course, and the weather and climate, long-term climate change. Yeah. It's a serious range of functions. And... Um, and it has that natural inclination just in terms of providing weather forecasts to interface with the public. Yeah, yeah, it does. Your water guide's very water scarcity centric. Yes. And I found when we started talking about it in Laos uh, that all of a sudden it, you know, they, they kind of liked the idea of it, but it just didn't seem as relevant the way it was framed to their situation over there. So there's a tremendous opportunity to broaden water guide. And, and deepen its kind of um, utility value by considering those other types of use cases yeah. rather than just the water scarcity ones. So, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. But let's speak about the work that you have been doing with, for the AWP, uh, with the AWP in India, and mm-hmm. in particular starting the work that you're, you've been doing, speaking with practitioners, really trying to understand what's the best way to engage mm-hmm. um, and how can AWP and Australian expertise or knowledge be put to good use or be supportive or how to even move forward in a way that makes sense for them? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I think 
AWP have initiated something very important here, and it's the, the business of um, having a country strategy for each and every partnership that they, that they have out there, because not all of these countries have the same boundary conditions or motivations or constraints. Mm. Um, and so India is the first country where they've sought to develop a, a, a country strategy, and I've, um, I've had a go at, at, at producing one. It's still a bit of a work in progress, but uh, um, I went about it by really doing a very extensive set of interviews. I uh, interviewed some 30-odd people that had been working over there uh, for AWP or independently of AWP in a few cases, um, to kind of get a bit of a, a sense of their experiences. You know, we've got rich experiences uh, over, you know, over the last few years, and uh, I've tried to set out in the, in the draft strategy for the moment the, the kind of main things to think about uh, in India. Um, it's clear that they've got a, a series of diabolical water challenges. You know, they've got everything from acute water. They've cut it all. <laughs> yeah, everything from everything. wash, water quality problems, water scarcity, flooding, you know. So you don't have to look far for, a, you know, a juicy problem to, to, to focus on. Um, but um, working out how to interface with them and, and finding a productive opportunity in a sea of opportunity that's a different thing, and that's what the country strategy is trying to inform. And um, so a few things that we need to be mindful of in India, I found. Uh, one, probably understanding the dynamic between states and the, and the central government agencies is very, very important when it comes to water reform. Mm. It's very, very important. Uh, it's a complex federation, like Australia, but, mm. but way more complex. It's, it's got some 30 objects rather than six or seven. Um, of course, it's a vast, you know, giant country with many, many people and many, and vast many institutions as well. So mm -hmm. navigating your way through that maze and working out the productive alliances to, to work with is, is very important. Um, although it's beset by many problems, it's also a highly capable country. I mean, this is a nuclear-powered space uh, race country. You know, so they've got serious capability, technical capability in their uh, in their country, and, uh, and they have it in the water sector as mm -hmm. well. And so, working out our value add to that is a very important thing to, to mm -hmm. ponder on. Um, they have a unhappy colonial history as well, so they don't uh, react well to kind of colonial type mentalities coming into their country, telling them how to do things, um, working out a way in which to work with them, help them to help themselves, is a real important thing I discovered. Um, and I've learnt about many cases of misfiring where, you know, the Australian team went in heavy-handed trying to sell an approach which they really just did not want. No. Um, and so being mindful of that, Little trap. And not just Australia, well. there's been a number of other countries. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it happens all over the all place. place. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of sensitivity to carpetbagging as well. You know, many countries are over there really because of commercial um, interests. You know, it's a massive country, its water sector is huge. Yeah. It's literally going to spend trillions of dollars on water in the next 50 years. Because it has to. Yeah. yeah. 
and many countries look at this as a kind of a business opportunity. Well, Australia, actually, when you speak to our people in DFAT, um, although naturally they, they want to see improved trade between our countries, they're really coming at it from a, a, a water diplomacy point of view, rather, mm. thinking that, look, we've got some interesting and useful skills in this area. They've got some big problems. It would be really good for our bilateral relationship if we could find a way to help them meaningfully. You know, so coming in with a you know a bit more of an authentic, honest uh, approach in the first place, mm-hmm. I, you know, it turns out to actually be a really good thing to be doing, and and not setting up great expectations of any massive commercial return. Uh, it's hard doing business in, in in India. Very hard to actually um, execute anyway. And so having a patient, long-term view turns out to be a, a real key thing. And and people that go in there trying to, you know, get on the gold rush are, are probably approaching it from the wrong wrong standpoint. I think so. That was another another learning. And the other nuance is that although they've got many deep problems, you know, they've got terrible, still some terrible um, wash problems, and you know they're way behind on their. Um, sustainable development goals. Um, they're not an aid country either, so you can't go in there with this kind of aid mentality either. So um, yeah, again, finding a way to interface with them that's authentic and resonates with them is is the key. And you know, the strategy offers up a few pointers on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what's also really interesting is that uh, uh, the AWP has a person who is in India, who's there, who's on the ground, and it's not. It's like we're trying to build a relationship by having a representative um, who can just be available and yes. not just fly in and fly out, um, yep. but that there's this consistent um, yeah, relationship building that's happening through that position. And yeah. uh, that's also, very, I think, a very positive aspect. Oh, it's it a master stroke, I think, to um, appoint Vijay there and have him on the ground. He's a guy that's got you know, tremendous networks and experience and virtually every person that I interviewed thought that that was fabulous that AWP had done that yes so um, yeah I'm sure that's going to yield a lot of fruit I mean I find that intensely interesting yeah I mean it's a real yeah it's a hell of a um, kind of privilege really and an honor to go into a country and to kind of learn about it and meet fabulous smart people in agencies and discover what their issues are and but find a way to help them. I think it comes from the sort of compassionate leadership framework that you operate from as well that you were speaking about earlier with really trying to understand the intelligence of the individuals who are there, whether it's scientists or yeah. other specialists in India, and really trying to empower that and work with that and, yeah. and, and make the most of it. And and it's I think it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing <laughs> to, <laughs> to see that application um, being yeah. brought uh, through the AWP into these other countries. That's great. Yeah, well, it's always been important to me. I mean, I learned very early in my research career, actually, that I could accomplish 10 times more by helping other people do their job better than to try and do it myself. Yeah. You know, I never regarded myself as a particularly great scientist. <laughs> I mean, there are individuals that, you know, do change the world, but I wasn't going to be one of them. Mm. So... Uh, yeah, I quickly learnt that it's so much more productive to, to work in teams and get people working together and then you can just create things that are really special. In um, in your other missions to the other countries, 
Do you see any, particularly within the space of water regulation and water data, any leverage points uh, that are commonalities between the different contexts that you visited um, where it could be something to really just consider in terms of addressing some of these key challenges to having quality data and making that data accessible and sharing amongst the different agencies? Well, I, I look, in virtually all the, situa well, all the situations I've gone into, really, I have learnt that um, um, it's been very hard for these countries to execute water reform in a general sense because they lack a compelling narrative around their, what I might call, for a better word, burning the burning platform situation, mm -hmm. you know, that you speak to technical specialists and they'll quickly... Um, explain how they're facing a cliff at some point in the near future and yet that sense of urgency that sense of crisis is not properly conveyed in a compelling narrative which a minister can understand and embrace nor and nor the public can understand and embrace yes. and virtually all of them are struggling with this same problem you know the technical experts understand how serious the problem is but that, that the communicating it in a way that resonates that, with the politicians exactly. and the public is... That, that, that's the thing that all of them lack and crave a solution to. Yeah. And water information turns out to be the, you know, one of the magic ingredients. I mean, you need individuals with you know, great communication prowess, for sure. Um, but um, you know, getting their water information assets working for them to catalyse change is the common common point and the leverage point and one reason why they're all interested in trying to reform mm. their, their, their water information. So getting it away from this kind of generic omnibus technical focused conversation around how do we how do we get our data sorted out to yeah. thinking more about it as a kind of a business proposition. That's 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 the key. And that's that's where I like to work with governments and senior officials uh, on, on that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting to see what emerges um, from yeah. that. That's right. good. Is there anything else that you'd like to discuss or share? Um, only that, um, you know, it's apparent to me that um, water diplomacy here um, is a great strategic um, asset that Australia has. You know, we've got some fabulous institutions and individuals and and organisations here in Australia, if they face out to the rest of the world towards some really, frankly, existential um, problems mm. there, I think we can bring a lot of credit to Australia. Um, um, we've certainly got a lot of worries here in Australia still around water management, but the rest of the world actually has got far more acute problems and they could manifest into serious regional conflicts and humanitarian crises. And so I'd just like to see the Australian water sector motivated to work more with AWP to kind of face out towards that. Um, it's hard to do business over in these countries, I understand that. And, yeah. But, you know, insofar that Australian actors can work with AWP and DFAT mm. to, to kind of get out there, I'd really exhort them to do so. Um, because, yeah, I think the psyche of humanity. Is, we have to. <laughs> we have to. We have to, really have to do that. Yeah. And with with the relationships that the AWP is building in these countries, that can help facilitate things as well. Yeah. So 
Yeah. AWP is a great construct to enable that, that kind of transition mm. to, to happen. Um, I mean, there are countries like you know, Holland, France, um, United States, they're, you know, they're out and about Germany. They're out yep. and about. They're deeply embedded in these countries. Yes. Um, and they're doing great work. They are. Um, we're also, you know, getting serious economic return mm. uh, as well. But Australia's late to come to this table. We've been very inward-focused, I suppose, and it's probably not a bad thing because we've kind of... Sorted, had some challenges to deal with, Yeah, we've had sure. some challenges and we've sorted many of them yeah. out. Um, but now I think there's a great opportunity, uh, particularly as climate change bites and population growth continues. Um, you know, the world is so much more connected than it used to be. Um, there's really a need for us to be out there more. And so, um, yeah, I just really celebrate what AWP and DFAT are doing here. Yeah. What kind of advice or direction would you be able to provide for people, um, particularly young water professionals who are passionate about this, and maybe even people in country who are saying, wow, we have a huge issue with the with data in my country, I'd really like to get a little bit more involved in providing support to this approach. What, what could you share? Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I think the magic formula for getting going in a career is always aligning yourself with smart, capable people, you know, finding out, you know, who, who are the experts in a particular field, who, who inspires you, mm-hmm. who's got something to offer, and and just put you know putting up your hand and asking for some support and maybe volunteering you know your time yeah. uh, occasionally. Um, but yeah, that, that that to my mind is really the best way. Engage with someone that can mm. give you the the inroads into your into your field into your sector. Finding a mentor even. Or yeah. A... Well, that, that that's one way of doing it. Yeah. yeah. Go entering into a formal or an informal mentoring relationship that might be a an endpoint of, of that. I mean, every every great opportunity I had in my career was because of someone that gave their time generously. Yeah, um, seek out people that have got really something to, to add and uh, and learn from them, work with them. Mm. Yeah, that's that's the best way. Yeah. Excellent. Well, with that, I think we can conclude the interview. Keeney is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Keeney connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at keeney.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more.